The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is six minutes after 10 a.m. This is the Friday edition of The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon, standing in for Kathy Mutlatana. Now, in this hour, I want to ask a set of questions important to our political existence in South Africa. But more importantly, it speaks directly to our political agency. Each and every one of us living in South Africa have our birth-given right of political agency, where we can participate in the body politic, where we can decide the destiny and the direction of the body politic, and where we can shape it and act on it in ways that are critical to it, right? But do we fully utilize that which we have? Do we express our dissatisfaction in the most politically strategic ways possible that shapes and enforces change? I'll tell you why I'm asking these sets of questions. All week long, we heard murmurs, unsubstantiated for the most part, and now clearly doesn't exist, of a national shutdown that was due to happen. I don't know what it was meant to look like. Sandako distanced itself from it after it was said, but Sandako is part of this, and... Many, many organizations, COSATO came forward and distanced itself from it. Many, many organizations distanced itself from it. And when we think about these sets of questions, and each time there's a threat of a national shutdown, it simply just means, and if it were to be real, it simply just means that South Africans are so tired of the status quo that they are going to disrupt their lives for a day to register their, their dissatisfaction in the form of protest, or whatever else they may, see, they may see fit. But the question that's at the top of my mind and it bugs me, and it bugs Kanya, one of the producers there, and when we had this conversation in preparation for today, she said to me, her biggest fear is, when is the tipping point? When are we going to reach a point where South Africans say, enough is enough, and this whole thing blows up? We thought... The July unrest may have been it. But the reality about July unrest was that it wasn't a national event. It was a regional event where the breakouts were only but in parts of Gauteng and in parts of KZN. The other seven provinces of South Africa were peaceful and went about their lives as normal. Yet for two provinces to do that means that, and it, and it really put the country into darkness, means that there's power in the collective, whatever that collective may manifest as, however that collective may manifest that power, right? When will be the tipping point? Three out of every 10 young people are unemployed. Is it going to be when all young people are unemployed, when it's 10 out of 10 young people unemployed? Six out of every 10 South Africans altogether are unemployed. Only four in 10 South African households have a salaried income. Everyone else depends on various different forms of social welfare. Only 10, only 4 in 10 South African households have a salaried income. That is a worrying statistic. Joining me to have this critical conversation is Tessa Dooms, who is an executive director at the Rivonia Circle. Lisa Ngobozi will be joining us as well. She's a lecturer in public governance, public policy, and gendered approaches to development at the Witz School of Governance. And Siamo Malachi is a political analyst and an organizer. 
Tess, I'm going to start with you, and and I'm going to ask you this question because it's not a new question, and it's a question that we briefly would have thought about a few nights ago uh, when one of your colleagues at a book launch said he's surprised that July the July unrest doesn't happen a lot more often. Um, when will be that tipping point? Yeah, Oliver, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, my best shot at it is this, is that we are already at the tipping point. We are in a, in a slow decay as opposed to an explosion. And I think we must be wary of the fact that um, just because we're not, you know, our lives are not disrupted. And when I say our lives, I don't actually, uh, I need to qualify that a little later on. But when we think about the July unrest, as much as that was for most people in the country, you know, something that was shocking to our system, rightfully, as you say, most people's lives continued. But really, that's what's happening every day in the country, is that you have many communities that are waking up every day um, and are either in some state of of, um, disturb and unrest because of the high levels of crime, because of the ways in which um, you know people are having to hustle and try and make their lives work, or because of collective action around protest, or, or you know some form of resistance, some form of protecting um, things that they have or th- asking for things that they want. The majority of South Africans' lives is already at the tipping point, is already in perpetual crisis, and. The, the, the problem is that we have created two or three or many different societies in this country where there are people who can have bubbles that they are insulated from the daily chaos that has become our country, from the daily sense that people feel that they're not living a life that, is, that makes sense, that is predictable, that has the basics in it, and everybody's scrambling. And so we are in a slow burn um, and and I, I don't I don't foresee that we're going to necessarily have some big blow up moment. But what we are going to start to realize is that people are going to get to a point of dysfunction that's going to it's going to make it very difficult for these Chinese walls that we've put up um, for people of means, for people who are the ones who are salaried, for people who have been able to create an alternative South Africa through privatized services that's not going to be able to carry on for very long Mm. because if you just take the example of crime, crime is one of those things that is going to start um, messing with all of those kinds of stabilities that you can create outside of the fact that the majority of people live in crisis and chaos every day. That's that's a very, very important uh, um, thing to point out, right? That there are many different South Africans uh, some people live live on the margins of comfort. Some people live well within comfort. Some people live in the precarity of hopefulness every single day, hoping that they're not next to fall into poverty. And some people are seeped very deep into poverty. Multiple different South Africans, uh, South Africas that exist. Um, and you say it's not going to last for much longer. But it's a slow decay, uh, closer to the Zimbabwean example, maybe, than, say, the Egyptian example with the Arab Spring. Is that, a, is that a good way of characterizing it? Yeah, that's a great way of characterizing it. 
And the important thing to think about in that context is if if we're waiting for a big explosion, if we're waiting for a moment where, you know, everybody's going to be galvanized to take to the streets and destroy uh, and destroy everything, that's waiting too late. It's allowing a lot of things to already just be dysfunctional and for us to become comfortable in discomfort and comfortable in dysfunction in ways that actually will make it very hard to rebuild, um, you know, and, and if we wait for that explosion, it will make it even more devastating. Mm. Tiamo, what then, how then do we reclaim our political agency if we've become comfortable in discomfort and comfortable in dysfunction? Um, as Tessa puts it, right? Um, when will the most disenfranchised South African, and what comes to mind for me is a homeless woman in Cape Town, for instance, as an example of what I think the most disenfranchised look like. It could be multiple things. But when is that person going to reclaim their political agency? Sorry, sorry Tiamo, can, can you just start over again there? Your line was just terrible. Oh, sorry, am I more audible? Hello? Ooh, it sounds incredibly hollow, incredibly hollow. Let's see if we can get you onto a better line, Tiamo. Uh, Tess, I want to put the same question to you. When is that person uh, going to reclaim? Because it, it, at some point it must be like, do we speak for the most disenfranchised or do we allow them to speak for themselves? How, If we allow them to speak for themselves, not even allow, right? But if we create the space for them to speak for themselves, how do we empower them to claim up that space? Yeah, I mean, one of the hopeful things that I have um, when it comes to thinking about South Africa and the rebuilding of our country is that um, because so many people are having to, without much support from government, from resourced parts of our society, from the private sector, make their their lives work, people actually are using a lot of agency every day. They're invoking a lot of agency. So if you think about um, people who live in, in homeless situations, they create communities. They create communities where they are incredibly resourceful um, at organizing themselves, organizing for food, organizing for shelter, organizing um, to, to keep themselves safe. Um, those are the smallest glimmers of what is possible at local levels when it comes to rebuilding. It, there's no place that you can go to in South Africa where you will not find some level of communities organizing so that they can um, avert absolute, absolute devastation and desolation. Mm. So if it, whether it's a small community garden um, that people have started, whether it's community policing forums, which we see quite often um, in different parts of the country, um, mm. People are, are increasingly doing things like small markets. I was in um, in the Eastern Cape in, in Rebecca two weeks ago, and a community has basically right across the road from a big mall. They've created their own little community uh, marketplace. Where literally, people are setting their things on the floor on the corner of a street where there's a robot. And they're selling and they're buying there and they've created a communal space for their own economic activity. Now, it takes very little for a government who is interested and willing to start to see these pockets of citizen activity and actually go there and say, hi, how do we help you concretize this? How do we help you make sure this happens within the ambit of the law? How do we help you make sure that this progresses and grows and builds? 
And in the absence of a government that's willing to do that, um, civil society and business will need to play those roles. It seems we'll to me, need Tessa... to be able to step up and, and help organize uh, more formally the daily activities people are doing that are signs of activism um, and commitment to getting the country moving and keeping it going. In instances where I've seen that happen, at least under the Herman Mashaba administration in the city of Johannesburg, where the government, and here I mean the local government, did try to, in weird ways, approach informal traders and say, hey, look, you guys are breaking the law. How do we help you? Well, that wasn't their first question. The first question was to penalize them for breaking the law, and then only helping them became an afterthought. But it seems to me that there is even a trust deficit so deep and so wide between the state and the citizens that even if the government were to approach say the group of people in, in Kobecha who have set up a market for themselves, uh, the people will just say, well, we've gotten this far without you and we're working very well. Leave us alone. Um, we don't trust you. That that trust deficit is a real one. Um, how do we address it then? It, it's a huge issue. Um, in the work that we're doing at Veronia Circle, we do um, engagements in local communities. And... I've, I can't count the number of times I've heard people say, please tell the government to leave us alone. Let's just start doing things outside of the government. Leave the government alone. They leave us alone. We do things on our own. There are communities that are building schools for themselves and you know, would rather do that than rely on the state. There are communities that are saying we want to use you know, land that, that the municipality has. And that's why we are seeing increasing amounts of people using land that is unused by the states and and building on it or creating gardens or doing all sorts of things. And so that's a growing sentiment. People are saying, we are checking out of this democracy and its institutions, including the government. Mm. And that's a very dangerous place for us to be because my retort to that is number one, we do want to encourage citizen activism and citizen participation in our democracy. If democracy is about self-governance, we want people to feel like they can wake up in the morning, see a problem in their community, see a problem in their in their surroundings, and they can do something to fix it. But that should not have to be outside of the state and its resources and its power, mm. because whether you're working or not, you're contributing to the tax um, and, the, and the fiscus and the money that sits within government. And for as long as we continue to have elections, we are giving people power that could be used for good. And so when I say that businesses and civil society need to lead the charge in terms of trying to support activism, I don't mean that we should lead the charge and completely just let government go and do whatever it wants on its own without accountability. What I do mean is that we should help build those bridges between communities in the state. We should make sure that um, people who do have legitimacy, who do have resources, who do have power, who do have social capital, like businesses and formal civil society, become platforms that empower citizens to act on their own and to engage the state. The state needs to be re-engaged. It needs to be called to order. It needs to be held to account. And without us having some sort of um, united effort that brings together citizens in their everyday communities and more formal structures like businesses and, and civil society organizations that have the kind of 
mobilizing infrastructure so that we can confront the state together, we're going to continue to have um, you know, very little impact in our little small corners. Yeah. Tiamo, how do we reclaim our political agency? And I'm here, I'm speaking, I say we, I, I'm really referring to the most disenfranchised South African. Yeah, so I, I really am sympathetic with what Tessa is saying about the law and about state. But we look at the course of history and governments have never been good. They've never done things to help with the poorest of people. And even when they design welfare programs, they're temporary and they come with so many terms and conditions, it doesn't help those that need it the most. So obviously there's two routes I think any disenfranchised should take. There's the legal route and then there's the more radical action route, civil disobedience, which we've used throughout history. I don't know why we should ever abandon civil disobedience. That's how we change laws and change the state. Things that are considered illegal in the past are now legal. So we shouldn't be too wary of the legality of our action, but rather what kind of outcome we want. So let's look at basic issues like food and shelter. You know, you can wait for the government to provide you a house, or you can rally a community together and you can occupy abandoned buildings. And occupying an abandoned building is going to guarantee you shelter tonight and tomorrow and the night after, and then you both campaign around occupying that building, you get legal support to fight the government when they try to evict you, and you build your activism around that occupation. So that is a disenfranchised person taking power into their own hands. The same thing with food. You find vacant land and just plant a vegetable garden and grow food and eat. So I think that that kind of direct civil disobedience is the best route for a disenfranchised person. But there is a legal route as well, especially for people who have some level of income. Putting all of your money together and cooperating to open up a community center, that's what we've done here in Bloemfontein, we opened up a community center which operates from Monday to Sunday, and we're funding it from the contributions of many community members, some people giving 20 rand, 50 rand, micro-donations that come together and help us pay rent. You know, you could put lots of money together and then pay rent for a shelter for people to stay, and that's entirely legal. That doesn't require much civil disobedience, but you also aren't waiting for the state, you aren't waiting for businesses. Finally, even if you've got the state or businesses to support your initiative, what happens if one day they wake up and decide to stop supporting you? You know, you saw that with the GAD law in the U.S. where they refused to fund NGOs and organizations that had relationships to pregnancy termination or abortion. You know, a lot of these organizations didn't have funding anymore. So conditions can change, and the people who are funding you can stop funding you. You need to be as self-reliant as possible. The civil disobedience route is to occupy buildings, yeah. to launch a food garden, and then the legal route is to have micro-donations from people in your community yeah. to get a space to operate from. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we head to a very, very short break, Lise, civil disobedience has worked in the past, but in South Africa has a very particular history because the state has a monopoly on violence and the response to civil disobedience is often exercising that violence through armed forces. And I say armed forces and not the police service quite deliberately because that's what happens, right? Marikana, um, July unrest, and a many we can. There's a myriad of examples we can draw to. Um, how then do we think of civil disobedience? Do, do you think, at least in, in Siamo's sentiment, that civil disobedience is perhaps the most effective way of reclaiming your political agency as a disenfranchised people? I mean, think, um, also good morning to the listeners. I think the the thing on violence is actually something that a lot of post-colonial countries come out of. Um, or countries that come out of some form of oppression, that the mode of 
of um, communicating some sort of um, dissatisfaction with the state or the status quo, most of the time has been around using very particular um, and strategic ways of uh, engaging the state from what we call violence, right? Um, and these vary across the board. And we've seen this in the post-apartheid moment as well, that the many ways in which disenfranchised, disenfranchised people engage the state is through some kind of civil disobedience, through some kind of uh, you know, what we call service delivery protests or, yeah. you know, those kinds of things have began to frame the ways in which people feel the most heard by the state. Where in the everyday institutions that the state, are, the state is supposed to use to engage the citizen, we've seen that those institutions are failing and they're failing dismally. Um, and so when these things crop up, it's because there's a vacuum in the state's and the state's inability to exercise its key competencies over the citizen mm. um, and mm. the ways in which the citizen has handed over particular responsibilities to the state and when the state no longer fulfills those 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 responsibilities or those competencies people respond in very particular ways and some of these ways in South Africa have been through the use and the modes of violence that we're seeing and that particular language I think has a very loaded history specifically when we're looking at a country such as ours where violence has been sort of a mode of political communication and political expression yeah. but also is a mode of and other forms of structural violences that people face on the daily right. yeah uh we're gonna take a quick break uh, actually before we go to the break tess i want to ask you this how should we view violence as a as a tool of political expression and participation tessa hi Oliver, can you hear me yes now i can H how should we view violence um as a as a form of political expression and political participation when you live in a country like South Africa, where there's so much systemic violence around you, it's very difficult to um, to tell people, well, you're not allowed to violate, um, you know, around you because people feel a sense of violation. Um, I remember during the July unrest when reporters were talking to people um, and asking, you know, do you think it's right that you are damaging infrastructure? And they said the infrastructure is not mine. I don't get access to a macro. I don't have the kind of money and resources it takes to go and buy the thing that's there because the country is not set up that way. Um, people would say, you know, I, my, my life is chaotic every day. My life is filled with chaos all the time. So what stops me then from feeling like this, this is now a, you know, a step too far? Mm. If we if we want people to stop and if we want people to not be violent in, in society and against the system, we need to create systems that are not violent against people. What do you, what do you mean? Who's we? Do who's that, we? Sorry, who's we? We as a society. Okay, we so, as, so not we um, the state, right? We as society. No, the state as well. So okay. the, the state is part of society. The state needs to do that. Businesses and the ways in which we structure our economy needs to do that. And we as communities need to do that. We certainly cannot expect that people who are experiencing um, a sense of marginalization, rejection, isolation, um, and that their lives are made um, difficult by the ways in which we have structured our society to then just say, well, when they do the same, when they act in violence, it's only their violence that counts. Our violence in terms of the system that we have become comfortable in is also a problem that we need to fix.
Absolutely. Give us a call and tell us what you make of this conversation, what you want to contribute to the conversation. Uh, 011-714-2006. I'll be taking some of your voice notes as well. 0614-104-107. Tweet me at Oliver underscore speaking. Oliver Dixon on Facebook. SAF at SAFM Radio across all platforms. It is hashtag SAFM Talking Point. Let's take a news headlines with Liesl Wilson. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 106.6 FM in Mangaung. It is 32 minutes after 10 o'clock and you are still listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon and we're in conversation with Tiamo Malachi Lihe Ngobozi as well as uh, Tessa Dooms. And we're talking about reclaiming political agency amongst a myriad of issues pertaining to our political existence and condition uh, as South Africans, often South Africans on the margins of access to humanity. Uh, it's an important conversation and I want you to participate in it. The number to dial is 011 six if you'd like to contribute to the conversation Lita, we often speak of a politics of the alternative when we speak about people who are outside of the margins of uh, the body politic but i'm struggling to imagine what that alternative looks like right tiamo speaks to uh, speaks to it to some extent tessa gave us an example of a community in in Klebeha, for instance that had started their own market that seems to me like a politics of the alternative but it seems to me like a cop-out, right? It's, to me, it seems, why don't we hold these people to account mm. that are the state and have a political, moral, as well as constitutional duty to deliver to us that which they're supposed to be delivering to us? When we create a politics of the alternative, it seems to me, at least, that we're saying, yeah, hey, we'll do our own thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it necessarily means that. I think... Th- I don't think it necessarily means that. I think the the problem with South Africa is that we overestimate the dominance of party politics as an organizing structure and how people engage in any sort of political work or any sort of political conversation or political action. Um, And that there are a myriad of alternative ways in which people express their political affiliations, their political ideologies, and as well as their political dissatisfactions in many ways. And so the dominance of party politics, specifically in the public sphere in South Africa, has created the impression that the only way people can organize is if they are for a particular party or against a particular party, or if they back some sort of ideological... Um, some ideological stance of a particular party and therefore they fashion their politics around that. But a lot of people create alternative forms of engaging the state and also engaging politics more broadly. And so this idea of an alternative is that is, is, is cr- even the framing of things such as alternatives makes the assumption that any sort of political engagement outside of dominant party politics is something that is external to what's happening in the everyday. Mm. And these kinds of formations are part and parcel Mm. of the political process in South Africa and that they speak to the political climate and that they speak to the ways that people choose to engage in politics. Mm. So movements such as Abatlal Basom Jondolo are intrinsically part of political culture in South Africa. You know, the the sproutings of different um, non-partisan formations that are coming up in South Africa and those that are taking a lot of political airtime in South Africa are also part of the political culture. And they are presenting or fashioning new ways of thinking about how we engage in politics and how we engage in the state more broadly. And so I don't necessarily think the question is about 
are people, you know, not holding political parties or the state or government um, to account. But what they are doing is that they are creating a politic that doesn't fundamentally depend on the functioning of those particular political parties or those political ideologies or those backings of those um, political parties. And so we as South Africans also need to push ourselves a bit further in thinking about how people engage politically outside of dominant party formations and factions and, and, and things of that sort. And so the questions I think that South Africans need to ponder is, can we imagine a South Africa where the dominance of political parties is not what takes a lot of political airtime in South Africa, but the ways that people engage with the state at a very grassroots interpersonal relation, um, inter- interpersonal kind of um, um, space, and what then that means when they communicate to the state in mm. very particular ways. Tessa, is there a growing appetite for participation in politics of the alternative and fashioning, as Lisa say, our politics around, or at least outside the dominance of partisan politics and party politics. I ask that uh, in the backdrop of a context that says 14 million South Africans voted uh, and 90% of them voted for the three big political parties, the ANC, the DA and the EFF. That's when 90% of the voter share went amongst the 14 million South Africans that did vote. 12 million South Africans decided to not vote um, at all. I'm not sure how they participating oftentimes in the body politics and shaping their politics. Given that context, is there a growing appetite for a politics of the alternative? There is a growing appetite for um, people to have, well, not, not even a growing appetite. There is a growing um, evidence that people are participating and they are actually um, exerting their own sense of agency on the system and trying to change things. So in again, in local communities everywhere, there's evidence of people doing this. The biggest evidence of it isn't actually in the concentration that you point out to in, in, in voting. It's in two other places. One is that people still can feel like they can go out into the world and do something about their own lives and other others around them and not be involved in voting at all. That's why we have 28 million people who sat out the last election, because clearly people are saying there are other ways that I want to engage. We should not read that as just apathy in general. We should read it as what are those people doing when they're not voting? And I think we have to answer that question comprehensively and we'll be surprised by what we find. But the second and more important signal is that we have a growing number of small micro parties that growing number is going into the hundreds at this point. Well, over 600, actually, (laughs) over 600. That says to us that people do want to organize and they do want to be engaged. And, you know, the the fact that the dominance of the, the big parties is still there cannot take away from the fact that hundreds and thousands of people are willing to organize themselves in more local ways. And perhaps what's wrong with with the system is that we don't have an electoral system that is actually encouraging and fair to those small organizations and parties in terms of the kinds of sway they can have in um, the, the political system and in the formalized governance system. So we actually have a system that has become increasingly not fit for purpose. 
because we have a system that encourages big dominant parties and um, you know is favorable to them, but a system that is not at this point responding to the fact that people are interested into micro, local, accountable, effective politics that they can see, feel, and be a part of in the ways that people were part of street committees during the time of the UDF. That's where the country is at in real evidentiary terms, and our system is not responding to it at all. Thank you so much for your engagements coming through on the WhatsApp line. We'll be listening to some of your voice notes in a very, very short while. But give us a call, 011-714-2006. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of this, we continue the conversation. And we're taking your calls on 011-714-2006. Bean, good morning. Morning, Mr. O.R. Campbell. <laughs> How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm fantastic, man. Go ahead. What's on your mind? I've got a really bad bit of a flu thing for me. I'm trying to hold back. <clears throat> Thank you for taking the call. Mm. Um, kudos to Tessa Dunsley. Um, We need so much change. As a... An, a, a um, now a pensioner, mm. comrade um, of the seventies. Um, it's, it's so sad to see no more rallies, no more uh, energy platforms, and monies into communities development, grassroots levels. You know, where we have like action. There's participation, families are involved, neighbors are involved, communities. It's like everywhere it's a buzz of this vibe for mm. a common cause, you know? Mm. Whether from primary school, uh, uh, high school, higher tertiary, whatever, sport, just to have that Ubuntu thing, mm. you know? Like the vibe in, 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 in communities just to promote what we have had. Mm. We had lesser than, we were limited more than, to prove what. If the youth of today asks me, Dixon, what have you sacrificed for us, for our futures? What do I have to answer? Hmm. Banana parliament. Chaos. No fruitful examples in leadership. It sounded like a market, like an auction mm. in Parliament. It's so sad. Mm. It is so sad. I mean, we used to walk carefoot, in, in, also in, in Grit Road and whatever, you know? That's how we grew up. For after all these years, not even have water touch, lack proper electric toilet systems, to still have like uh, the whole every, each and every system. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, it's incredibly where sad. Where are we? Yeah, it's incredibly sad that so many years on later, basic necessities are not still being accessed. Thank you so much I for your call. I break down at times. Yeah. I break down at times, Dixon. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What do I have to prove? Mm. So many of us have passed on young, tortured. I lost two cousins. One was in Parliament. 
and there hasn't been a Secretary of Parliament permanent after Michael Gutierrez. Hmm. I'm sorry. B, thank you so much for your call. Really, really thank do you, appreciate it. All the way in Cape Town. in Cape Town. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Thanks for taking my call. Mm, go ahead. Ooh, your line is a little bit shaky. Can you, can you, can you start again? Can you hear me now? Yes, much better. Go ahead. Yes, what I'm saying, man, it's an interesting topic with your guest. Um, it's uh, highly possible that we can have something alternative than this hope that we've been fed by our government that things are going to get better. As entrepreneurs, we are dying. Sir. But my question to your, to your, to your, to your guest, uh, rather than talking on SAFM about these things and solutions and stuff like that, where are these conversations going on be- besides SAFM now, because on SAFM it ha- it's a topic today, tomorrow we move on to another topic, tomorrow we move on to another topic, but now how do we implement, where is the yeah. action plan, you understand? Yeah, that's then, a very, that's, uh, that's an incredibly good question, I'm going to have to leave it there. Tess, I want to go straight to you, I- I'd like you to respond to Msingisi directly, where is this happening other than here right now? Yeah, Oliver, I'm doing it every day. go ahead it's happening in a few it's happening in a few different places um so tiamo does some great work um in in the free state where they're doing not only uh, mobilizing people getting projects started and and continuing them going but tiamo is one of those young people who's actually decided to contest politics himself yeah um and has run as an independent candidate so there are examples of tiamos all over the country in cape town um Akhtolile Notwara has started something called the Movement for Care, where they're doing political education around local government, and they're teaching people how they can use IDP processes and other kinds of processes at local government to actually um, change systems. Um, The Activate Change um, Drivers Program has just launched a toolkit or will be launching a toolkit this month where they are um, putting in the hands of anybody who wants it a toolkit that teaches people about how government works and how they can get engaged and hold government to account. At the Ravonia Circle, we've got a program called the Democracy Builder, where we're going to different communities and we're creating a toolkit for this as well, where you can do um, a combination of political education with people where they discuss politics for themselves, um, where we get people to talk about the vision of South Africa that they have. And we've got about 10 projects that are happening around the country that are community-driven solutions to the problems that they have. Yeah. And so there are these initiatives that are happening around. But I think the point that your caller is making um, is this one. One is that we need to organize for scale. We need to start bringing together all of our small bits and pieces and the siloed things that are happening in different parts of the country and create platforms where people can convene, support each other's efforts and scale the things that work. But more importantly, we must be willing to resource those things and we must be willing to use those platforms to support people who are willing to contest 
contest for actual government power. So there are things that are happening, and I encourage people to look into some of those initiatives that I've raised, including Rebonia Circle's work, and see if there are ways that you can get involved, because we definitely need to organize um, in ways that yeah. are much more visible than they are now, um, and make sure that we, we scale initiatives. Um, and heading towards 2024, the South African electorate and the South African public um, must organize in ways where we set the agenda for 2024 as opposed to have the agenda set by the politicians. Tiamo, in two minutes, can you tell me if, if, if there's still any usefulness towards participating in electoral politics? I ask this because Tessa says, let's not look at voter apathy uh, or voters not turning out as apathy, right? It's not political apathy. They're participating in the politics in other means, right? Lisa also spoke to her about it and spoke to the examples through which that happens. You also spoke to it. You also contested for elections, or at least tried to contest as an independent in your ward um, in the local government elections. But when we started this conversation, you said you've got a fundamental distrust of government because history shows that it's never worked in the interest of people. Where should our influence be directed towards? The mainstream politics in the electoral sense or the politics of the alternative? Yeah, we can participate. I mean, the elections in 2024, the next local elections in 2026. So that participation is only coming in a few years. So yeah, go for it. But what do we do right now? And that's when we go back to what Tessa and Nisha and I've been saying on our call. Let's uh, gather and organize. Um, the model that we use here in Bloemfontein is we speak to the young people in the community and we gather what little disposable money they have, even if it's 20 rand, you know, and then we rent out a building. So we find buildings for 5,000, 6,000 rand, and we just gather 200, 300 young people and give us like 20, 50 rand each. We rent out the building. Once you have a space, you can design programs. I mean, we've been giving our soup to homeless people. We also allow homeless people to participate in making the soup. And um, we've got uh, clothing thrift. We've got art programs. Our center has free Wi-Fi so people can do their schoolwork and do education. We've got a public library. I can go on and on, Oliver. So I think none of that happened through elections. We didn't need to have a vote so that we could open a community center. We didn't need to have a vote. So we could yeah, but how important then does electoral politics remain? I, I think it's so important because like Tessa mentioned, the government collects our tax money. So let's not give up on the government who's got all those resources. Let's still fight for the government. But whilst we're fighting for the government, like he said, let's create alternatives. Okay, fantastic. We're going to continue taking your calls on the other side of this. Sean in Glen Hills, I see you. I'll be with you very, very shortly. And we'll take some of your voice notes on the other side of this break. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Eight minutes to the top of the hour. We're still in conversation about the political condition and future of South Africa. Let's take some of your calls on 011-714-2006. Now I'll be listening to some of your voice notes very shortly. Sean in Glen Hazel, good morning. Morning. It's actually... Shimron, um, so thank you so much. My for apologies. The show. My apologies. Go ahead. No, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Um, so thank you so much for the show. I, I really think that it is so so fundamental to um, the getting back to that beautiful vision that Nelson Mandela had for our Rainbow Nation in the nineties, which unfortunately we've lost. The I I, I think that. Um, We've got to stop as South Africans, in agreement with your panelists, uh, relying on um, government because they've just failed us too many times. We, as uh, um, 
different private individuals need to form in civil society organizations, which are already done. And I think one of the best examples of that is um, James Delaney, who's an artist in Killarney. He has completely revitalized a uh, public space called The Wilds. And it's, it's an amazing public space now. It used to be, uh, um, it, it, it was about 50 years ago that, mm. and then for, for various reasons it fell into dis, uh, disuse and became a crime hotspot. And he lived in the area and he decided to reclaim it. And it's amazing things like that. And I'd like to see uh, other um, civil society organizations also focusing on environmental type of issues. I mean, mm. we mm. saw two days ago, Tuesday and Wednesday, we had some of the worst uh, uh, weather um, in the world. We were the third most polluted city after New Delhi and Kuwait City in the world because of um, various climate forces, but primarily because of ESCOM and fossil fuels and things like that that we use. Mm. And we have one of the most amount of uh, most sunshine in the world. We're not called sunny South Africa for nothing. Yet Germany, which is has a tenth of our sunshine, is a hundred times more uh, um, uh, projects with renewable energy than mm, South Africa. That, mm. for, to me, doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we, as business and civil society, need to step up and reclaim our future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your call, Shimon. Really, really do appreciate it. Let's have a listen to some of your voice notes that's come through on the WhatsApp voice note line on 614 Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, listeners of Radio SAFM, Maria Ipos Oliver, post-apartheid was easy to for, have deformations and be active. But nowadays, the bigger parties are killing us slowly and softly because they think we're trying to be in opposition. Indefinitely be in opposition to them. But they, yeah, they kill slowly uh, any other information by legislation, other subtle ways, but so you just kill um, any other political formation. Because in the post-apartheid civics, a lot of other things. So yeah, and then also the issue of, of payments. People get these days paid being on the world competition or whatever, and everybody can't pay, you see. Thank you. I'm listening to your current interview and I agree with a lot of what she's saying. I think the biggest problem we have in South Africa is that people are not taught civics. Civics is a lesson about your role as a citizen. Every big first world country has citizenship and, and civics classes. It explains why you should pay taxes, why you should throw away your trash, why you should take care of the environment around your home and your community, why you shouldn't burn things and trash things because it's your tax money. The problem is many people in this country don't pay tax. That needs to be changed. I think if everyone paid taxes, understood where their tax money goes, if it's not stolen in this country, then perhaps they would feel a part of the community. If you feel a part of the community and you feel like it's yours in ownership, you won't burn it down. That's my comment. Lisa, are we politically uneducated? I don't think 
think so. Um, I don't think that's a fair assessment to make. Sorry, sorry, your mic just switched off there for a second. Let's see if we can get it back on. Go sure. ahead. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a bit of a harsh statement to make, nor is it a fair... I don't think it's a fair assessment to say South Africans are not politically aware or educated. I think people live the reality of what's happening in South Africa every day. You know, mm. nobody needs to be taught you know, about what is going on. And nobody needs to be taught about the fact that a lot of our key institutions are failing. A lot of the people that are at the interface of the failures of institutions know that very well and they know why that is happening. And so I don't think people need to be educated. And I think part of the, the, the middle-class narcissism in South Africa is that when people talk about people, they're talking about the poor and they're saying that the poor are the ones that need to be educated, that it's the poor that don't know, it's the poor that don't pay their taxes, it's the poor that are burning buildings down, it's the poor that are you know, running around you know, burning this country to the ground. And that's a very dangerous assumption, assumption to make. And the level of middle-class narcissism in South Africa, where the middle class also outsource a lot of protest engagement to the poor and the vulnerable, and they sit and they listen to 702 and they listen to SAFM, and then they ask questions such as, when are we taking these conversations to the streets? And I'm saying, people are doing this. It's the middle-class narcissism and the middle-class culture in South Africa that makes a particular group of people believe that they can outsource transformative politics in South Africa to the most marginalized and to the poor. And so it's actually the middle class in South Africa that require way more constant, con way more education and how to actually engage in a serious politic, a transformative politics beyond just, you know, telling people what to do and how to act and that if people paid their taxes, they'd be a bit more respectful about the institutions. They would burn them down a bit less. I think that's very offensive. Absolutely. Patronizing as well. Yeah. Um, Tessa, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to punch your work as we wrap up the conversation. Um, I'm not going to punch my work, but I'm going to say something related to it. I'm at the Ravonia Circle. We're trying to redefine what politics means in South Africa. And we say that politics is the power to act. So beyond whatever formal politics and political party structures and elections, we need to get back to the basics. And the basics is every one of us as individuals, as communities, as families, have some kind of power to enact change. And we must all find in our small corners ways to do that. We must not wait for some big explosion. We must not wait for a messiah. We must not wait for some national shutdown. We must start doing it in our families, in our communities, at our dinner tables, at our community halls, at our taverns, at our bars. Somewhere you should be involved somehow in making this country better for the collective rather than just for ourselves. Uh, Tiamo, 30 seconds to punch your work. Tiamo? Sorry, can you start over? Your line was bad there. 30 seconds. We are over time. I think it's possible for us to come together with whatever money we have, let's vote with that, let's form community centers, let's organize. I don't think people are not organizing. I think that there's a lot of activity on the street, and I'm quite hopeful for the future. Thank you so much to my guests, Yamo Malachi, Tessa Dooms, as well as Lichle Ngobozi for coming through. Uh, I didn't ask you to punch your work, Lichle, because you teach, right? You're not an organizer in the community. But thank you so much to everybody. <laughs> my apologies to Liesl Wilson for running over time with the news, but it's 11 o'clock. Let's take your news.